As one reads 1 Timothy 3.15, the greatness and splendor of the local church looms large. The church is said to be the household of God, the assembly of the living God, the support and bulwark of the truth. And yet, as we read verse 16, there is an apparent shift in thought. What then is the connection between the church in verse 15 and the secret in verse 16? What is the relationship between the local assembly of believers and the secret of godliness? In what way does this great secret relate and apply to the church? Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Differing Things. I am your host, Bill Petrie, and I'm really glad that you were able to join us today. Today, I want to talk about a passage that I believe has really been really not understood the way that God would intend it to be understood. In the Universal Version Bible, we read 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verses 14 through 16. All this I write to you, though I am expecting before long to come to see you, in case I am delayed to let you know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, because it is the ecclesia, or church, of the living God, the support and bulwark of the truth. And without controversy, great is the secret of godliness, who was manifest in the flesh, declared righteous in the spirit, seen of messengers, or angels, proclaimed to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. As the interpreter reads 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the greatness and grandeur of the local assembly looms large before his eyes. The church or ecclesia is said to be the household of God, the assembly of the living God, the support and bulwark of the truth. And yet, as he comes to verse 16, there is an apparent shift in thought. The Apostle Paul is there revealing a great secret. Furthermore, this secret obviously relates to the Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnate life and ministry. What then is the connection between the church in verse 15 and the secret in verse 16. Why did Paul write verse 16 after he wrote verse 15? Why does Paul's theme seemingly shift from the church in verse 15 to Christ in verse 16? What is the relationship between the local assembly of believers and the secret of godliness. In what way does this great secret relate and apply to the church? Those commentators who deal with the contextual problem, and many do not, including dispensational commentators, are nearly universally agreed that the solution is found by equating the secret of godliness in verse 16 
with the truth in verse 15. By this interpretation, the secret consists of the truth concerning Christ is expressed in the six phrases of the hymn in verse 16, especially the truth of his incarnation. So they would say that verse 16 refers exclusively to Christ and applies to the church only indirectly in the sense that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth is responsible to uphold and support the glorious facts of the incarnate Christ. In four passages, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, Ephesians 3, 9, Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27, and Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 26, the Apostle Paul has clearly and carefully defined a New Testament secret, or I should say, a body of Christ secret. The definition that may be derived from these four references is as follows. The body of Christ secret is that which was hidden, kept secret, and not made known to men in previous generations prior to Paul's generation. But it was made manifest and revealed in the church era to and by the body of Christ apostles and prophets of whom Paul is chief. In view of this biblical definition, how can the great secret of 1 Timothy 3.16 be the incarnation of Christ since the fact of the incarnation was clearly revealed in the Old Testament? The fact that Christ would be manifested in the flesh was no secret to those who understood and believed their Old Testament. You can look at passages like Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6 and Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6, Micah 5.2 and Matthew chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 to see this point. But the fact that in this present eon, in this present era, in this present dispensation, Christ is now manifesting himself in a body, is the truth that thrilled the heart of the Apostle Paul. The incarnation of Christ, as it applies to the church, is a great secret indeed. There are at least six reasons for suggesting that the statements concerning Christ in 1 Timothy 3.16 apply directly to the church. First, the immediate context of verse 15 seems to demand application to the church. Paul's theme there is the greatness and grandeur of the local assembly. Considering verse 15, the secret of godliness 
must somehow pertain to the church. Verse 15 and 16 are grammatically connected by the word and, which is the first word in verse 16. Second, since a body of Christ's secret cannot consist of truths that were revealed in the Old Testament, the secret of godliness must refer to more than the mere objective facts of the incarnation of Christ as set forth in verse 16. Certainly, the incarnation of Christ was not a hidden truth in Old Testament times. Note also that if Paul were merely setting forth the objective facts of the incarnation, then he apparently makes a serious omission. In declaring the chief purpose of the incarnation, Dr. Alva McLean made this statement. God became incarnate in Christ in order that he might die for sinners. And yet, in verse 16, nothing is said concerning the death of Christ. Would we omit such a tenet from our doctrinal statements? Third, the term secret is used by Paul almost always involves an aspect of body of Christ truth. For instance, you can look at passages like Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, or Ephesians 5.32, or Colossians 1, verses 24 through 27, or 1 Corinthians 15, 51, is just a few examples of this. 1 Timothy 3.16 should be no exception, especially in view of the preceding verse, which is all about the church and how believers should conduct themselves in the church. Fourth, the term godliness in verse 16 Relates, relates to the immediate context of verse 15. The term godliness always involves the ideas of piety, reverence, and respect, which result in God-fearing or an awe-feeling conduct by the believer. The term describes the conduct of believers as they obey God's word. All one need do is read how Paul uses this term in the Timothy epistles. I want you to consider these verses very carefully. 1 Timothy 2.2 states, Even for sovereigns and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8 state, Ever reject these profane and old womanish myths and continually train yourself for the contest of godliness. For bodily exercise profits for little time. But godliness is profitable to all things having promise of the life that now is in that which is to come.
1 Timothy 6.3 states, If someone spreads false teachings and does not agree with sound words, that is, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the teaching that harmonizes with godliness. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, in constant bickering by people corrupted in their minds and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a way of making a profit. Now, godliness combined with contentment brings great profit. In 1 Timothy 6.11, But you, O man of God, must flee from these things. Instead, pursue righteousness godliness, faithfulness, love, endurance, and gentleness. Therefore, the secret of godliness in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, could accurately be paraphrased as the secret of God-reverencing conduct. So the obvious reference is to 1 Timothy 3, 15, where Paul's purpose in writing is stated to let you know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God because it is the church or the ecclesia of the living God. How should men conduct themselves in the house of God? The answer is found in verse 16, in a godly way, godliness. In other words, the great secret of godliness must somehow relate to proper conduct and behavior in the local assembly. Fifth, the Apostle Paul in setting forth great Christological truths always, almost always applies them to believers. All you need to do, for instance, is read a passage like Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. The doctrine of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ in Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 23, is applied directly to the church. In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18, Paul declares that Christ is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Again, direct application is made to the church in verse 18. It would therefore be most unlike Paul to set forth such great statements concerning the incarnation of Christ in 1 Timothy 3.16 without making direct application to believers in the body of Christ. Sixth, the great secret of which Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.32 concerned not Christ alone, but Christ and the church. We read there these words, the secret is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the ecclesia or church. In light of Ephesians 5.32, could not the great secret of 1 Timothy 3.16 also have reference to Christ in the church? 
we can assume that Timothy was quite familiar with the contents of the Ephesian letter. For instance, just look at verse 3 of 1 Timothy 1. In this connection, in this connection, we can understand that Timothy would view it as being applicable to him himself. We understand that the Father sent Christ into the world and that ministry is delineated in 1 Timothy 3.16. Has not Christ also sent the church into the world to act in his stead? The church, therefore, needs to learn about its mission. And when we learn about our mission, we can have a further grasp of what 1 Timothy 3.16 is speaking about. I believe we don't pay enough attention to this fact. The ministry of Christ on planet Earth today, in the year 2023, is carried on by the church. There are not apostles or prophets today. But there is the body of Christ. Jesus Christ is not walking on planet Earth today. But he is walking on the Earth in the believer. And I believe this is exactly what we find in 1 Timothy 3.16. Let's look at how the mystery of godliness applies to the church. The six phrases found in verse 16 may be analyzed as follows. Christ was manifest in the flesh. The living God became flesh, according to John 1.14, and made himself known in and through a body, according to John 1.18. Likewise, God the Son is today manifesting himself in and through his body, which is on the earth at the present, as we can see in passages such as Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, and Colossians 1, verses 24 and 27. As the visible and local body of Christ stays healthy and conducts itself in a godly way and functions according to the biblical pattern found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, then the following will be true. God's life will be manifested in and by the church. You see that in Colossians 1.27. God's wisdom will be manifested in and by the church, according to Ephesians 3.10. God's power will be manifested in and by the church, according to Ephesians 3.20. God's grace will be manifested in and by the church, according to Ephesians 
God's truth will be manifested in and by the church, according to 1 Timothy 3.15. God's love will be manifested in and by the church, according to Hebrews 6.10. God's glory will be manifested in and by the church, according to Ephesians 3.21. Yes, Christ was manifest in the flesh, and he lived and walked on this planet. But according to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, no man knows him today after the flesh. But we do know the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is manifesting God's life. It is manifesting God's wisdom. It is manifesting God's power. It is manifesting God's grace. It is manifesting God's truth. It is manifesting God's love. And it is manifesting God's glory. Wow. Isn't that incredible? The second statement, Christ was declared righteous in the spirit. Throughout his earthly ministry, Christ was vindicated by the spirit of God. His miracles and signs were performed by the power of the spirit, according to Matthew 12, 28. And that spirit allowed him to give unmistakable evidence that Jesus Christ was all he claimed to be. The ultimate vindication of Christ took place when he was raised from the dead, according to Romans 1.4. In the same way, God the Holy Spirit is today vindicating the resurrected Christ in and through the assembly, convicting the world that he indeed is the righteous one, according to 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verses 16, going through to the end of the chapter in verse 21. Third, Christ was seen of messengers or angels. Throughout his earthly life and ministry, Jesus Christ was the very center of angelic interest, attention, and curiosity. They marveled at their holy Lord as he humbled himself and was made even lower than the angels so that he might taste death for every man. And yet today, it is the church that has become the theater of the universe in the center of angelic observation. Unto the principalities and powers, God is now making known his manifold wisdom and grace by the church, Ephesians 3.10 states, so that by means of the ecclesia, the multifarious wisdom of God might become known to the principalities and authorities that are among the celestials. See also passages such as Ephesians 2.7. 
or 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9, or 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11 and 10, chapter 11 and verse 10. The living God is using the body of Christ, the church of this present dispensation, to teach the angelic realm concerning himself. Fourth, Christ was proclaimed to the Gentiles, and the responsibility and privilege of making known the unsearchable riches of Christ has been committed to the church. Although the evangel was known in previous ages, Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, and Galatians 3, 8, there is a secret aspect of that evangel which was unknown in other eons, but which now forms the very core of the good news preaching of this church age. The passages which delineate the secret of the gospel are as follows. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 and 8, 5 through 8. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, and Colossians 4, 3. Our distinctive message today is that Jews and Gentiles alike may believe the gospel and be united into one body, a living, breathing organism, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And all of this for the purpose of manifesting and bearing witness to Christ who is the head of this unique living organism. Interestingly enough, he is not dealing with nations, and consequently, it has nothing to do with Israel. Fifth, Christ was believed on in the world. And it is the glorious privilege of the church to bear witness to Christ as the sole object of faith. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed for the unity of the church for the purpose that the world may believe that you sent me. As the church functions according to godliness and edification, then unbelievers will be convicted is they see the living God being manifested in the assembly. All you need to do is read a passage like 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 through 25. In the sixth statement, Christ was received up into glory. When Christ was taken up into heaven at the ascension, this marked the termination of the Lord's earthly ministry and witness. Likewise, the earthly ministry and witness of the church also has a terminal point. When Christ your life appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with him, Colossians 3.4 tells us. 
I think it's important for us to really look at a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, and 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where the same word for the ascension of Christ is used for the rapture of the body of Christ. It's interesting. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the ascension of Christ did not mark the termination of our Lord's ministry and witness, but rather it marked only the beginning. Throughout early Acts, did not the prophets and the apostles for Israel proclaim prophetic truth? And in Acts chapter 9, when the apostle Paul came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, and Israel was set aside, and God began to function solely through the body of Christ, it is the body of Christ that continues the witness and teaching through the proclamation of the secret that was committed to the Apostle Paul and now us. The six phrases found in 1 Timothy 3.16 when applied to the church can be briefly summarized as follows. First, manifest in the flesh. God the Son manifesting himself in and through his body, which is on the earth. See Colossians 1, verses 24 and through 27. Second, declared righteous in the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit vindicating the resurrected Christ in and through the assembly. Is that not what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about? Scene of messengers or angels. God the Father making known his multifaceted wisdom and grace to the principalities and powers in the celestials by means of the body of Christ, according to Ephesians 3.10 and Ephesians 2.7. Proclaim to the Gentiles. The body of Christ is making known the secret of the gospel among all the Gentile nations. That's Romans 16, verses 25 through 26. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> Believed on in the world. The assembly, the body of Christ, functioning as a godly witness before the world. And some believing that witness and responding to it and coming into a saving knowledge and a saving relationship with their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not what 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4 talk about? 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Believing that simple truth and trusting it places an individual into a relationship with their Savior that can never be broken. Yes, it is believed on in the world. See also a passage like 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 through 25. In the last phrase, received up into glory. The body of Christ being received up in glory at the snatching out of the body of Christ at an event typically known as the rapture. It's Colossians 3, 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 through 52. Paul, in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3, traces the purpose, witness, message, and destiny of the church. Understood properly, 1 Timothy 3.16 provides the most comprehensive summary of the secret aspects of church truth that can be found in all of Paul's writings. It should also be noted that this section, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, is the key passage in the book of 1 Timothy and gives the very reason why the epistle was written. Remember, the dominant theme of 1 Timothy is the local church, its doctrine, its worship, its organization, its officers, its discipline, its enemies, and its conduct. This interpretation solves the chronological problem. That is, why did Paul mention the preaching and believing before the ascension of Christ? Christ was not preached among the Gentiles until after the ascension. All six phrases in 1 Timothy 3.16 have God or Christ as the subject. But the significance of these phrases has direct bearing and application to the local church. Thus, what we have is a series of six parallelisms in which the present tenure of the local church is analogous to that of our Lord Jesus in the days of his flesh. The death of Christ is not mentioned in 1 Timothy 3.16. Certainly, the death of Christ was of utmost significance to the church because God purchased the church with his own blood, according to Acts 20, verse 28. But the emphasis in 1 Timothy 3.16 is upon the life and witness of the Lord Jesus, and by application, the life and witness of the body of Christ. And thus, the omission of any statement concerning the death of Christ is easily explained. Do you see the church? 
as God sees it? Does the body of Christ's truth thrill your heart as it did the apostle to the body of Christ, the apostle Paul? Do you pray fervently that the Lord might open the eyes of your understanding so that you might see how precious the body of Christ is to Christ? Have you discovered what are the riches of the glory of this secret? Are you a healthy cell and a healthy member of a local body of believers? Is the indwelling Christ being manifested in you and those that you associate with? May we agree with Paul. Great is the secret of godliness. If you have enjoyed this particular episode of Differing Things, I would ask that you would give us a like, leave some comments, and give us a follow. That way you'll never miss any episode of Differing Things. Good day, and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.